Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. Morning, church family. I won't ask you to say it again. Um, Many of you knew that I was sick this past week since Wednesday, and uh, I want to thank you for praying for me, sending notes of encouragement, really appreciate it. So I I don't want to be careless with that, I want to be cautious, so I wasn't going to be mixing and mingling before or after the service, after I preach, I'm just going to head out to the car, keep my mask on. Um, But part of that experience was something I hadn't really seen before. I I don't typically drive in five minutes before the service starts. And it blew me away how many cars are in the parking lot. You, you all must take your own individual vehicles here. Like if your family has a couple vehicles, you must bring both of them, do you? It seems like there's more cars in the parking lot than people in the facility. Um, we're four weeks into our winter teaching series, Belong, Believe, Become. And the groundhog saw his shadow, so that means six more weeks of winter teaching series. Did he see his shadow? I don't even know. Shubanakadi Sam. Um, So we chatted three weeks on the topic of belonging. What does it mean to belong? Nicodemus tried to earn it. The woman at the well was searching for it well after well after well. The lame man by the pool of Bethesda, he had given up and lost hope until each of those individuals had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. And Jesus defeated the religion He knew everything the woman had ever done, and he did what nobody else could do for the lame man. The man had been left on his own in his time of need. So this week, we are starting three weeks into what it means to believe. Everybody needs the truth to believe. We're going to be in John chapter 6, if you want to turn there. John chapter 6. Notice that it has like 69 verses in it. John chapter 6. I've entitled this sermon, Food for Thought. I want to give you something to chew over, something to sink your teeth into, something that you're going to have to digest this afternoon. Isn't it interesting how many food analogies and illustrations we use for reasoning and thinking? Yeah, we're going to play on that a little bit. John chapter 6 and verse 1. Are you there? Verse 1. After this after healing the lame man at the pool that we talked about last week. Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. I just want to say, following the crowd is not necessarily following Jesus. In fact, following the crowd, I would say, is the worst way to try and find a truth to believe in. Because... The crowd isn't really out for the truth. We're going to be talking about that in a moment. The crowd was following Jesus because they saw how he healed the lame man. They wanted to see some more miracles. Verse 3, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Let's just get that picture in the context, because I love this. I love being outdoors. I love hiking. I love putting the boat in the water and going out. 
Jesus was up on a mountain and sat down with his disciples. Jesus often spent the night out under the stars with the disciples around the campfire, sharing stories. I don't think hot dogs were invented back then. Verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Here's another Passover. How many Passover, how many feasts are we counting through the Gospel of John? Seven. Remember that? We're about to read another miracle. How many sign miracles are we counting in the Gospel of John as recorded in the Gospel of John? Seven. Jesus is about to make an I am statement. How many I am statements are we counting through the Gospel of John? Seven. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Do you know what seven means? Seven means perfection, completion, fulfillment. Jesus is the fulfillment of all those prophecies of the Messiah throughout the Old Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment. The feasts point to him. The miracles point to the fact that he is the Son of God. And his I am statements do the same. So this is the Feast of Passover, and this is the one we're probably most familiar with. You know Moses, the Hebrew people, they're in slavery in Egypt. You've got the the end of the book of Genesis, finishing with Joseph bringing his family to Egypt during the famine. And then the book of Exodus is about Moses and the people having been in slavery for 400 years. You have the 10 plagues. The last of the plagues was the death angel. And God told the people through Moses... You need to find a lamb without spot or blemish, a perfect lamb. And you need to kill it and you need to use its blood on the doorposts and on the lintels so that when the death angel comes, it will pass over your house because the blood of the spotless lamb covered you. That's the picture of Passover. That's what Passover was commemorating. Last week, Steve led us through the Lord's table. Jesus brought a new covenant in his blood. Jesus is the sinless lamb of God that was slain for sin, not just to cover sin, but to cleanse us from all sin and to free us from the punishment of sin, which is death. Passover points to Jesus and it sets up the context of this passage really nicely. So you have the context so far? Look at verse five. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, up on the mountain with his disciples. Jesus says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And get verse six. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Why would Jesus test Philip? Why Philip? Yeah, was it for fun? Philip is the one who ran to tell Nathanael in John chapter 1, we found the Messiah, come and see. So where's his faith now? Why test Philip? Jesus knew what he was going to do. Is this like a bear trap? Is this like a trick question? I ask my kids questions like this all the time. I'm sure you do too. Okay, you've got your jacket on. What's next? Now, I know they need to get their hat and their mitts and their boots on next. I want them to know that they need to get their hats on 
and their mitts on and their boots on next because there's coming a day when I won't be there to guide them in that process and they need to know how to do it for themselves. It's an invitation to reason through what's next. I wonder if Jesus is doing the same, giving Philip an opportunity to practice and reason through his faith. Verse 7, here's Philip's answer. Will he pass the test? Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little denarii. Now that's a currency in that day. It was a coin. A denarius represented a day's wages for a skilled laborer. So we've got some skilled laborers in the room. Let's do some math. Think about how much you make in a day. Now think about 200 work days. What's that, two-thirds of a calendar year? What's, what's two-thirds of your annual salary, your annual income? This is what Philip is referring to. That's a good chunk of change, isn't it? Can't, can't you see how Philip's logical and analytical mind is working? This is how I would want to think. Okay. We have one, two, three, four, five thousand people here, Jesus. And let me see how much money we have. Maybe he pointed to Judas, because Judas carried the money bag. We've got one, two, three, four. We've got 200 denarii here. 200 denarii. Let's do some quick math. Uh, 200 denarii is enough bread to feed a family of five for a year. So 365 times five, it's like 1,800 portions divided into 5,000 people. It means everybody would get about a third of a piece of bread. That's probably not enough. That's not enough to feed all these people. Does, does your analytical, administrative, scheduled, budgeted, logical mind ever get in the way of your faith? Like If I can't reason through this and figure it out on my own, well, then what am I going to do? Because that's my answer for everything. God presents an opportunity. Wait, let me check my schedule. Ah, that's garbage day. It won't work for me. <laughs> God presents an, an opportunity to help somebody on a silver platter. Mm, my bank account says probably not this month. A coworker starts asking questions about Jesus at work and your mind is busy running through all the potentialities. What will the other coworkers think? Do I want to be known as that guy? Do I have the energy to be involved in their personal life? What if they ask me a difficult question? I don't know the answer. I only have this much to offer. Will that be enough? You see, the problem with that kind of reasoning is it's unbiblical. Because according to Scripture... Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things that you can't see. Hebrews 11. The Bible also says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Proverbs 3, verse 5. So if we need to have the physical resources in our own strength, ability, energy, understanding, finances, schedule, well, then that doesn't require faith. If I always have what's needed in and of myself, I don't need faith. If I've got the answer to any and every question, I don't need God's truth. I don't need to believe in something greater than myself because I'm great enough. There's something that you could misquote <laughs> that would be very wrong. 
I've got to be careful making sure it's very clear that this is hypothetical. But isn't that the point Jesus is making to Philip? Philip, your faith, your belief, it can't be in you. You cannot be the object of your own faith because that's a pretty weak faith. You need a greater source to rely on. You need a deeper well to draw from. You need a stronger arm to lean on. You need something greater than yourself to believe in. Because if your faith is in the remaining 200 bucks in your account, what happens after you pick up a gallon of milk, a dozen eggs, and a frozen pizza, and you're left with a toonie? (laughs) What do you do then? (laughs) The hunger thing's an interesting picture, isn't it? There's a large crowd. They're coming to Jesus. Jesus says they need to be fed. They need something to eat. How did he know? How did he know that they were hungry? Why, why did Jesus suggest feeding them? Were they complaining? Were they like holding their stomach in hunger pains? Anyone have loud stomach gurgles when they're hungry? This, this was a huge problem for me. I don't know what changed. Maybe it's because I, I do more preaching now and I don't do so much sitting on a typical Sunday. But it used to be for years, week after week after week. I don't know if it was the busy pace or what or if I didn't have a good breakfast, I I would sit in the pew in the church facility for the church service with the church family, and then the sermon would hit, I'd be sitting there with my wife, and the stomach gurgles would start. And it's it's almost as shameful as doing like a big yawn during a sermon, like, is he almost done? When, When your stomach roars like that, it's like, I need to get to cafe and have some lunch. When's the sermon going to be done? But shouldn't we be hungry when we gather together for our celebration Sunday services? I'm, I'm not talking about dreaming about garlic fingers. I'm talking about being hungry for the truth. Hungry for God's word, our daily bread. Shouldn't we crave communion with our God through the Bible? Like, like when somebody we love from far away sends us a letter? Shouldn't, shouldn't we be eager to chew through it, deep desire to feed on it, to be nourished by it. So many of us as Christians, we're anorexic in our faith. We consume so little biblical calories that we're malnourished. We can't handle the meat of the word of God like Paul says we need to start on an infant diet of the milk of God's word because we're so weak in it. We can't handle it. I really feel for the Christian today who's trying to make it through the week on this amount of spiritual food. Because it's not enough. And that's too much pressure on the preacher. Imagine trying to survive on one meal a week. You couldn't do it. You wouldn't want to do it. Your faith would starve. Your Christianity would be so weak, so frail, so lifeless. You've probably experienced what it's like. Man, I I haven't opened my Bible this month. I haven't spent time in prayer. I haven't reasoned through a good sermon in a long time. I haven't engaged in a discussion in a life group, maybe ever. Man, I haven't even had a spiritual conversation with anybody this month. How's your faith? How's your growth? How's your energy, your zeal, your passion for the Lord? I can probably tell you exactly how it is based on that. How did Jesus know they were hungry? So the same story, 
recorded according to John Mark in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 6, verse 35 and 36, it sheds a little more context, a little more light onto the story. Verse 35 and 36. When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. Seems like a logical option, eh? Let them go to the local market, pick up something tasty to chew on, because people are hungry. Let them go pick for themselves, fend for themselves. Problem is, people don't know what to choose. People don't know what to believe. People are starving for a foundation, something they can trust, something they can build their life on. Where are they going to find that bread? Well, the disciples said, send them to the local communities and let them choose for themselves. Do you know how many forbidden fruits are being sold in our local markets today? Do you know how many tasty tales are being spun and offered at a discount? Do you realize how many low-calorie lies are being presented as a healthy option? I'm not talking about food. I'm talking about the truths that our world offers as good options for you to trust and live your life by. There are endless mantras circulating pop culture that our world has believed wholeheartedly. You do you. YOLO. Hashtag bucket list. Life's about your personal happiness. Money is king. Sex is the ultimate. Fame and fortune. Freedom. People are starving for truth these days, but they're settling for a lie. Because it's easier to go to the junk food cabinet and eat a bag of chips than it is to prepare chicken and rice. Isn't it? Have you found that on a Friday night? Amen? Yeah, guilty. People are starving for the truth, but they're settling for a lie. Our, our culture is flooded with fake news. Your truth, my truth. Let me speak my truth. Don't judge me. Don't tell me I'm wrong. No absolute truth. Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? People don't have a truth to believe today, but yet we fill our bellies with tasty, twisted truths that taste so good. Did you know that lies spread faster than the truth? And there's research that says the same. Researchers at, at MIT did a study on the spread of false news on Twitter. <clears throat> Professor Sinan Aral says, we found that falsehood diffuses significantly farther, faster, deeper, and more broadly than the truth in all categories of information and in many cases by an order of magnitude. Here's just one stat about Twitter. It's the one that made the most sense to me because I don't understand Twitter. It takes true stories about six times as long to reach 1,500 people as it does for false stories to reach the same number of people. Falsehoods to 1,500 people spread six times faster than truths. Six times faster. 
The world is so hungry for a nutritious diet of truth, yet we cheat ourselves, gorging on excessive amounts of junk food lies, clickbait, juicy gossip, tasty spilled tea. That's the devil's tactic, isn't it? Deception, lies, twisting the truth, making the forbidden fruit seem so desirable. Isn't that what he said to Eve? Hath God really said? What's the truth you're going to believe? What speaks to the hunger in your heart? Send them to the villages so they can make their own decisions on what food will fill the cravings. And Jesus says, no, you feed them. Spoiler alert, Jesus is setting up a big teaching moment. For the disciples and for you and me, let's go back to John chapter 6 and look in verse 8. We've got to pick up the pace because we've got 61 verses left in this chapter. <clears throat> but we've still got time. One of his disciples, verse 8, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, oh, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Andrew seems to step in when Philip's options fail. The little boy's lunch, but how's that enough? Surely the little boy's lunch is nothing compared to 200 days' wages. That's a big chunk of change. You buy a lot of bread. Or was this a step of faith for Andrew? You know, I I don't know if this will help, but I'll offer what little I have anyway. See what happens. Jesus, I'm going to give what little I have to you, and I'm going to see what happens. Verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in that place. I like that added detail. (laughs) What, is it a comfy place to sit? Is Is that what... John is telling us. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Now, 5,000 is enough. And I've heard so many commentators and pastors say, yeah, but that's just 5,000 men. Then there's women, then there's children. So we're probably talking about 20,000 people. Well, I don't think you really need to do that. 5,000 is more than enough to make this a miracle, right? 5,000 in number. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. When they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. I wonder if the disciples were like, are you serious? Do you know how long it took us to hand out all that food to all those people? Now you want us to go back around because there might be leftovers? You know, we started with five loaves and two fish, right, Jesus? There's not going to be leftovers. So they gathered them up. They filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Fantastic. Isn't Jesus incredible? This is a miraculous sign pointing to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the chosen one. He's not like the others. He's not just some eccentric. He is the Son of God. There are so many mind-bending things in this story. Like, as much fish as they wanted from two fish. They all ate their fill. There were enough leftovers that 12 baskets were filled, enough for each disciple to get their own. I love leftovers. You open the fridge, all the Ziploc containers are stacked. You get to kind of sort through and take your pick. I haven't been eating a lot this past week, so we've got a ton of leftovers. 
and it makes it pretty clear to my family where all that food is going in our, <laughs> our grocery budget. But man, chicken pot pie. I forgot we had chicken pot pie. Let's throw that in the microwave. Five barley loaves, 5,000 men, 12 baskets. The math just doesn't seem to add up, right? Until you factor in Jesus. Let's call that the faith equation. Your need is X. Your resources are Y. There ain't no way to make X and Y equal one another until you factor in Jesus. The crowd is racking their brain. The math doesn't add up in their head. Their only deduction is this is the prophet that's come into the world. Now, this might be a messianic title. Or maybe people are thinking of the stories of the prophets of old, like Elisha and the widow and her son, and she had that jar of oil, and Elisha says, make, Elisha says, uh, how's it go? Get, get the jars of oil, pour the oil. The oil kept flowing until every jar was full. Sell all the jars, and then you'll have money to pay off your debts, and then live on the rest. That's a lot of oil coming from one jar. But then later in that chapter, 2 Kings 4, I, I don't know that I'd ever paid attention to this story. It's basically the same miracle that we're looking at that Jesus did here. Uh, 2 Kings 4 and verse 42, just let me read this for you. A man came from Baal Shalisha. I don't know if that's how you say it, but I'm guessing you don't know either, so let's just move on. <laughs> Bringing the man of God of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, give, give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So Elisha repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them and they ate and they had some left according to the word of the Lord. It's like the same miracle, right? On a much smaller scale, but the same miracle. Steve would say at this point, I love bread. Don't you love bread? Steve, it's kind of an inside joke in our life group. A number of people really resonated with that statement. But we love bread, don't we? This is a much smaller scale representation of what Jesus did. But after feeding the 5,000, we'll have to do a little jumping here for time's sake. Verses 16 to 21, the disciples are rowing three to four miles in bad weather until Jesus walks to them on the water. And then immediately the boat is at shore. His disciples are working so hard in their own strength to make it through the struggle, and then when Jesus is factored in, whoa, all of a sudden they're at their destination. The next day, the crowds search for Jesus again. They've had a whole night to sleep on the miracle that they experienced the day before. Look at verse 25, John chapter 6. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're just here for the free food. Verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Jesus is the truth to believe. What do I do? Just tell me what to do. 
What must I do to inherit eternal life? Just tell me what to do. Show us how to do it. Don't you wish the pastor or the teacher, your boss or your wife or your parent, don't you wish they'd just nutshell it for you? Just, just tell me what to do. Just give me a practical step that I can insert into my daily routine and change my life forever. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that at all. Jesus says, you need to believe in me. Look at verse 30. So they said to him, well then, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? And what work do you perform? Hadn't Jesus already done enough? Jesus says it's not about doing. It's about believing. It's a matter of faith, not works. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it's by grace you are saved through faith, not of works, so that no one can brag. It's not about having a good diet of equal portions, fat, protein, and carbs. It's about spiritual food. There is something greater to believe in than your next plate of food. They're stuck on this food thing. Look at where they go next, verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Sir, show me where I can find this living water that I will never thirst again. But how can these things be? Give me this bread so I'll never have to be hungry again. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. It's not about bread. It's about finding life in Jesus through faith. He is the truth to believe. He speaks to the hunger and the thirst in our soul. And then Jesus goes after this manna miracle mentality. I didn't mean to make that three M's. Look at verse 49. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. <laughs> that kind of solves the argument, doesn't it? Oh, back in the day, they had bread from heaven. That was so cool. Show us how to do that. Yeah, they ate the bread. Guess what? They died. What good did it do them? What good is a miracle going to do you if in the end you're going to die anyway? Sorry to wreck the party. I can give you all the miracle bread, the, the wonder bread, if you will. But there will still, I looked through my freezer for wonder bread. Apparently, we don't buy wonder bread anymore. But there will still come a point when your earthly life is finished, and then what? It's a pretty clear statistic. Everybody dies. There has to be more than manna. There has to be something greater to believe in. Look at verse 50. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread. In case you didn't hear it the first time, Jesus is going to say it the second time. The third time, if you count when he says the bread that the Father sent. Anyway, verse 51. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Mm. 
the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Isn't that kind of a weird twist? If you're, if, if you're participating online and you just turned this on, I would encourage you to read the whole context of this passage before we get into what I'm about to read. This probably isn't beginner entry-level stuff right here. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Verse 53, so Jesus said to them, well, let me explain. It, it's not what it sounds like. Let me just... No, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoa. I love it when people say that Jesus was like, Jesus is all about love and he's welcoming and we throw terms like inclusive and stuff. And this was a pretty bold statement that drove a ton of people away. Jesus didn't make it super easy for the people who had the crowd mentality who were just there for the free food to hang around and eat the free food. Jesus made it pretty clear what he was talking about, and you're either in or you're out. Look at verse 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven. There it is again. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Look at verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Wouldn't you agree? After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus is telling them in bold terms, eat my flesh, drink my blood. If you walked into a, a facility that had a sign out front that most people would refer to as a religious organization and you walked in and they were talking about eating flesh and drinking blood, if it was way out of context, like, what is the context? How do we understand this? Well, let's go back to what we talked about initially. What was the feast Jesus was traveling to Jerusalem for? Passover. What happened at the Passover? The spotless lamb was slain. His blood was put on the doorpost. The death angel passed over. You know what they did with that lamb? They prepared the meat for a meal and they consumed it, all of it. Jesus then institutes this new covenant. He's looking forward to the Lord's table that he's going to have prepared in the upper room with his disciples, that Passover meal that they're going to celebrate when he's going to say, this is the new covenant in my blood. My body is broken for you. My blood is shed for you. This is the picture. My flesh is symbolized by the bread. And my blood is symbolized by the cup. I'm doing this for you. Jesus is referencing the Lord's table, the perfect son of God's sacrifice for our sins. He is the lamb of God. Can I just clarify? He wasn't encouraging the crowds that day. Hey, you're still hungry? Well, here you go. Eat away this forearm right here. I, I can't imagine that's what he's talking about. This is the picture Jesus is portraying. You don't need wonder bread. You need the living bread. Let's finish out the chapter here. Verse 67. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
You have the words of eternal life. We have believed. We have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I'm going to invite some instrumentalists to come up here at this point. We're going to close the service. A bit of background music. I'm going to encourage you to remain seated. Typically when we pray, we close our eyes. And the reason I was always told for that was so that I don't get distracted during family devotions and look out the window while dad was praying before we drove to school. And I think that has some merit. But I would encourage you to keep your eyes open. You can close them if you would like. We're going to have some scripture portrayed on the screen for this closing meditation, the scripture that I just spoke through. And this is an opportunity for you to direct your thoughts and your time of prayer in the scriptural content that we just spent some time looking into. This is an opportunity for you to make some decisions, some applications, and really spend some time uh, through these verses on screen. Some purposeful prayer. And then we're going to close the service. I want you to join me in this. This is not just me praying up here. Uh, this is a prayer that I want us all to pray. It's between your heart and God's heart. We'll start by saying, thank you, Jesus. Can you say that with me? Thank you, Jesus. You are the spotless lamb slain for us. Thank you, Jesus. You cleanse us from sin and free us from death. I'm going to pray this next part for you, and I want you to, want you to think about this in your heart and mind. Maybe you're guilty of this like I'm guilty of this. Forgive me, God, for relying on my own resources. Forgive me, God, for thinking that I need to be enough. Please, God, would you keep me from those worldly lies that look so tempting? Please, Holy Spirit, give me discernment for your truth. Please, God, Give me a spirit of courage to point a confused culture to your commandments. Thank you, Jesus, for using what little I have to offer, even though it doesn't seem like enough. Thank you, Jesus, that when I am weak, you are strong. I'm sorry, God, for going after temporary food. I'm sorry, God, for being content with partial truths. Please, Jesus, would you show me what it means to be satisfied in you? Jesus, would you be my living bread? I'm tired of being left hungry on what this world has offered me. 
thank you, Jesus. There truly is no one else like you. Jesus, you have the words of life, eternal life. And Jesus, you are the truth that we believe. I just want to take a moment today and pray for the one who may have a hollow space in the place of their heart and soul where there needs to be a truth on which they can build their lives. God, I pray that through John chapter 6 and through the working of your Holy Spirit, through the hollow experiences of what this life has to offer that will never satisfy the soul. That Holy Spirit, you would show that individual here today online or in person. That Jesus, you are the living bread. You're the only one who will satisfy our hunger for truth. God, I pray that they would make that decision today.